6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27. Verse 20 and 21, I think, are great fun. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Interesting, interesting passage. And the more you study it, the more provocative it becomes. The word come, I believe, links to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The book of Revelation is divided into three sections according to John's 19th verse of the first chapter. He is instructed to write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta after these things. What things has he seen? Chapter 1, the vision of Christ, in which 24 titles are introduced that become the links, the identity links through the rest of the book. No problem. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, those seven churches that existed at that time. Jesus Christ dictated seven letters to seven churches comprising in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Those seven letters, those two chapters, are probably the most important chapters of the entire book. Everybody rushes through and gets to chapter 6 on, boys, and that excited. No, 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 wait, time out, guys. The rest of it, you're going to see from the mezzanine, you're a spectator. Chapter 2 and 3 affects you and I. Mystical, mystical verses, every verse, every detail in those two chapters are subtle, sophisticated, and highly, tightly organized. Seven letters, seven churches, study them carefully. They affect every one of us. Personally, collectively, and in, the, and in time. But after the churches, it says, write the things which shall be meditata after these things. And the first thing is come. John is told, we're caught up into heaven. And idiomatically, he's transported through time. He's given a vision of what's going to happen at least you know 2,000 years after he wrote it. And that's what Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is all about. The expansion of the 70th week of Daniel. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. What do you mean, thy chambers? The answer to that is in John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Wow. Where are we going to be when all this happens? With him. And we have our own mansions, our own chambers. Interesting idea, isn't it? Isaiah says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee, and hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment. Now, just a short period of time. How long do you hide? Until the indignation is past. The word indignation refers to God's wrath, his judgment of sin. You should praise God that he hasn't issued his wrath yet. Because when he starts, he finishes. He does the whole job. It wouldn't be just to judge part of it, not the other. If he's going to judge, he's going to judge it all. 
And God's, the day of God's vengeance is yet future. When we get to Isaiah 61, we'll examine the passage that Jesus Christ himself used to initiate his ministry. He quoted from the first two verses of that chapter, and then shut the book in the synagogue of Nazareth. He says, this day is that prophecy fulfilled in your ears. And as he does that, he's left out a phrase. He read it, but he stopped at a comma and shut it down. Because the phrase he left out was, and the day of vengeance of our God. He wasn't ready to do that yet. Thank goodness. If he had, you and I wouldn't be here. If Jesus Christ came a few weeks ago, a few months ago, a few years ago, there's some people in this room that would not be members of the forever family, that would not have a destiny, an eternal destiny with God. Praise God that he has tarried. Praise God that he has waited. Set aside your second mortgage for the moment. Praise God that he is tarrying. And the more he tarries, the more it gives you an opportunity to pray for your loved ones and to be responsive to his will in your life. But anyway, he says, hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. When God pours out his indignation, when the seven bold judgments are poured out in the book of Revelation, you and I will not be here. There are many good teachers running around that try to sell you differently. I've been through that. Let me tell you, I really am convinced from a lot of reasons, and this is one of them, that uh, the church is a very special group. Not all believers in the church. That's another fallacy that we all stumble in. We always assume that a believer is in the church. No, no. If a believer is between Acts 2 and the rapture, he's in the, he's in the ecclesia in the church. There are believers prior to Acts 2. Want some examples? Abraham, David, Noah, you name it. They're saved. Don't misunderstand me. But they're not in that peculiar entity that Paul tells us all about in his epistles. Especially epistle to Ephesians and so on. The ecclesia, the church. Very special group. There will be millions and millions of people saved after the rapture. The Holy Spirit's taken out in the sense that he indwells the believer. He's going to be taken out by taking out the containers. But he's very busy doing that. That's what Revelation 7 and 14 detail. God will again deal with the world through these 144,000, through the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And millions and millions of every people, tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved. What Israel did not accomplish... In her first shot, she's going to get a chance, and she will fulfill. That's what the book of Revelation. You've got to understand the book of Revelation's Jewishness from chapter 4 on. So you and I are a very special group. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have incredible, an incredible destiny. Incredible even in the context of the believers. You take the various categories that God talks about. So recognize, first of all, when it says saint or elect, it doesn't necessarily mean the church. It may be referring in some passages to a time after the rapture, interestingly enough. There's also groups of people in the millennium, but that's a whole other study. We'll get to when we get Isaiah 65 and so on. Isaiah is going to cause us to get into all of these issues in subsequent chapters, but let's move on here. Isaiah 26, 20 and 21, interesting verses. I wouldn't build doctrine on them. Don't misunderstand me. I just find them exciting. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. For the behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. He clearly has not punished the iniquity. That's one of the problems we have. That's one of the great theological issues. Why do the wicked prosper? And why do the righteous suffer? And the ostensible injustice of that burdens us. God is not is not punishing the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity yet. You follow me? And yet he will. And when he does, where will we be? In our chambers. <laughs> Neat. Okay, chapter 27. It's the fourth of these um, rather provocative 
this little, what they call the little apocalypse. Chapter 27, verse 1, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword shall punish the Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the sea monster that is in the sea. Okay. Uh, first of all, it's interesting that the sword has three aspects. It's hard, great, and strong, and also Leviathan is mentioned in three contexts there. But in any case, that may be just, it may be nothing more than the linguistic style of Isaiah, or it may be something perhaps subtle. Uh, we won't badger that one. The, the sword of the Lord, of course, is introduced in Deuteronomy 32. It also comes in Isaiah 34 and 66. We'll talk about the sword of the Lord again. But... Uh, with his sword, he will punish the Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. This leads to a whole other study that you can get into as to what on earth is the Leviathan. And uh, the Leviathan shows up in Psalm 74.14 and um, also Psalm 104.26. But perhaps most of all echoes in our ears from the passages in the book of Job where Leviathan shows up. And, and uh, of course, the book of Job is a fun book because it's fascinating to me to see the diversity of comments by various commentators. You know, most books, if you collect a dozen commentaries on any particular book, they, they'll have slightly different viewpoints, but in general, they don't, you know, deviate that much. The book of Job is off the wall because uh, good commentators, you know, you remember Job has his three friends that, uh, you know, with friends like that, you don't need enemies. They pontificate that obviously Job's in trouble because of his sin and all that. And the good bulk of Job is these dialogues with these three guys. But then a fourth guy shows up, Allah, and uh, it's interesting when God finally speaks out of a world when on behalf of Job, he rebukes the three friends, but he never rebukes Elihu and some commentators think Elihu is a young upstart because he's a younger man is an upstart and other you don't know whether he's wrong or whether he's uh, uh, Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ now that's, a, that's a range of viewpoint isn't it but also one of the other things you'll run into in the book of Job is that there are a lot of comments about Leviathan some think it's a crocodile there are all, all kinds of guesses as to what these references to the Leviathan in the book of Job really refer to but if you look at it carefully while it in fact in some places may refer to some specific kind of creature it all also, the language transcends that, and the Leviathan seems to be something far spookier. You might want to know that there are um, ancient myths from Babylon and elsewhere that speaks of a Leviathan as having seven heads. And in the in a couple of these passages in the Bible, it speaks of the heads, plural, of Leviathan, which suggests that the term is idiomatic and alludes to, of course, none other than the ruler of this world. Punish the Leviathan, the piercing serpent here in Isaiah. Interesting phrase. There again, we get the hint that the allusion here isn't to a literal, specific, zoological creature, but something uh, broader and more uh, spiritual creature. Piercing, even Leviathan, that crooked, he's a piercing serpent and he's a crooked serpent. And the very serpent idea, of course, links us to Genesis 3, the Nachash, the shining one that was made a serpent at the curse. Okay. Verse 2, in that day sing unto her a vineyard of red wine. And if you recall chapter 5 of Isaiah, we again had the song of a vineyard. This is perhaps a reprise of that. Uh, verse 3, I the Lord do keep it. I will water it every moment lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me who would set briars and thorns against me in the battle. I would go through them. I would burn them together. Oh, let him take hold of my strength. Let him make peace with me and he shall and he shall make peace with me. And there again we have the echoes, uh, I feel, of Psalm 2 again. Verse 6, he shall, this is a great verse, the one you may want to mark. He shall cause those who come of Jacob to take root. 
Israel shall blossom and bud and shall fill the face of the world with fruit. One of the most dramatic things that you can see with some of the videos or movies and so forth, the the film footage, is of Palestine, as the British used to call it, from, say, uh, earliest photographic records to the present day. And, of course, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they, of course, cut out part of their siege practice and cut down all the trees. And so they desolated the land. And as the centuries went by, it just got from things went bad to worse, from bad to worse. When the Ottoman Turks took over that land, they it was just destroyed. And and if you if you see the ancient footage of uh, as photography, photographic technology uh, developed, of course, there's all kinds of footage of of the, of the land in the you know, 1910, 20, 30s in that time period. And, of course, it's desolate. It's either swamp, which is useless, or desert, and it's just awful. But in the late 1800s, some Jews started to emigrate there. And then, of course, the Zionist movement in the 20s and so forth, and, and uh, the Balfour Declaration, ultimately climaxing, of course, in the State of Israel being announced May 14th of 1948. And it's absolutely fantastic to see the change in the ground. What's uh, always intriguing to me is when you fly over Israel is to notice the contrast of Israel versus the land east of the Jordan, which is still desert and desolate. And yet Israel is green with trees and, and uh, orchards and farmland and, and how they've just reclaimed out of the rocks. They have just made a fertile ground. There is a Talmudic expression which argues that the land will only give its fruit to the Jew. When, and whether it's just a colorful um, commentary or whether it, it's clearly that the land is yielding. Let me tell you an example of that. It says here it will fill the world with fruit. Israel today is not only an exporter of fruit, it's the third largest exporter of fruit in the world. And it's a land that's one third the size of San Bernardino County. Isn't that interesting? When you go through Europe and you see flowers in the markets, not all, but most of those flowers are exported from Israel. And, of course, the fruit is the, is, is, is the big thing, the third largest uh, exporter of fruit in the world. Kind of interesting. He shall cause those who come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Sounds like poetic license. No, it's literally true. And I do want to remind you that every time I've made a gross mistake in my reading of the Bible, it's because I didn't take it literally enough. As extremist as I am, I still find that when I've looked back and some of the things I've taught and realized they were wrong, it's because I didn't take it literally enough. Word of the wise. Verse 7. He hath smitten him as he smote those who smote them, or is he slain according to the slaughter of those who slain by him? In measure, when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. And he stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind, or Sirocco. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin, when he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten asunder, so that the idols and images shall not stand up. Yet the fortified city shall be desolate, and the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. When its boughs are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. 
Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come who were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts of the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the Holy Mount of Jerusalem. And, of course, this echoes Isaiah 19. If you recall, Isaiah 19 closed with this interesting trio of blessing on Israel, Assyria, and Egypt, obviously speaking of the millennial time. Uh, one other comment that's interesting, we have the great trumpet here, the same trumpet that's in Joel chapter 2. Let's pop over to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a feast that is set apart a feast, and call a solemn assembly. That's what a trumpet's all about. That's why it's so interesting. That's why we watch with such you know, uh, prophetic interest with a feast of trumpets. That's obviously going to prove to be very significant. But then verse 16 is kind of interesting. Gather the people, sanctify the, con the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that nurse at the breast. Let the, let the bridegroom go forth from his chamber, and let the bride out of her room. I wonder what that means. I wouldn't build doctrine on it, but it's kind of interesting. The bridegroom goes forth from his chamber, and the bride from her room. Uh, well, wait a minute. Who's the bridegroom? You know, prophetically, we, we have the idiom uh, of the bridegroom as being Jesus Christ, right? Who's the bride? Well, she's coming out of her room. Interesting. Would I build a doctrine on it? No. But with the views that I have, I find that kind of interesting. Isaiah, the little apocalypse, chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27. Very different style for Isaiah. We won't get into chapter 28. 28 through about 35 has um, more judgments and things. And uh, we'll uh, sweep through those chapters next time. There's lots of little surprises uh, in this too. We'll talk about the covenant of death, the treaty that Israel makes with, with Sheol. We hear that, and we, we read about that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And uh, Isaiah will talk about the covenant with Sheol and so forth in the coming passages. So they'll have a, a, clear, a clear prophetic orientation for us. When we get to, though, chapter 35, that will close this whole section of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is clearly in two parts, two styles. The styles are so dramatic, they gave rise to this idea that there were really two Isaiahs, which of course is not true. You can prove it's not true lots of ways, in spite the fact it's such a widespread uh, idea in scholastic circles, it's wrong. The unity of the book of Isaiah speaks for itself in its use of idioms, the way it ties together. But the most convincing proof is John 12, where the Gospel of John tells you that Isaiah is one book. Because he quotes from Isaiah 6 and he quotes from Isaiah 53 and says that same Isaiah said again. He ties it all together. So it saves you all that grief. But the point is, let's having still, even though we know that, let's recognize that Isaiah's, Isaiah's style is going to dramatically change in chapter 40. We'll finish this section of Isaiah with these judgments and all this stuff uh, when we get to chapter 30, uh, finish chapter 35. Next time we'll take, you know, the rest of it. We'll sweep through the other short chapters. We'll get through all that. Then there's a four-chapter 
parenthesis that's historical. Chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. There's four chapters. That's why some people divide Isaiah into three parts. Isaiah, the first part, the one we're talking about. Then there's this little four chapter. It's almost like a, a section of Second Kings tucked in there. And then, of course, we're going to go from chapter 40 on. Now, the chrono- chronological part, the narrative, the historical part, 36, 37, 38, 39, could be pretty interesting because it's going to deal with Isaiah and his relationship with King Hezekiah and some of the very interesting things that occur in his life that also become very, very pivotal in our understanding of that history and uh, make, uh, it'll make a lot of this much more clear. But where I'm excited to head, and we should be just a, you know, an evening or two away from that, is when we get to chapter 40, Isaiah really changes his whole style. He becomes, you think he's been messianic so far, fasten your seatbelts. Chapter 40 on gets exciting. And some of the things that Isaiah lays out, he lays out in such detail that biblical critics have no way to deal with it. Uh, while they, you know, what, what we, whenever you come across some passage you can't deal with, you late date it. You say, well, Isaiah couldn't have written this. must have been written later. Nonsense. But some of them, uh, well, we'll get to that when we get there. But the point is it's going to be a lot of fun. Isaiah 40 through uh, 66. It's interesting that the Bible consists of 66 books. 39 books are what we call the Old Testament, 27 are the New Testament. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. 39 chapters are the style we're talking about, Old Testament-y, if you will, right? Like the Tanakh. And then the last 27 will just sweep like the New Testament. And with my tongue in my cheek, as I often point out, obviously the book of Isaiah from 40 on was written by Handel. And, of course, I'm being flippant. And, of course, Handel actually draws upon Isaiah more than just the last 40, last uh, 27 chapters. But Isaiah 40 on is going to be fun. It predicts John the Baptist. It talks about Jesus Christ. And uh, it talks about a lot of other things, too. In fact, most of what we know about the millennium we know from Isaiah. Isaiah is uh, high ground, high ground. And, of course, in the middle of that is the highest ground in the Old Testament, what some scholars like to call the Holy of Holies of the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Incredible description of Jesus Christ and his mission and his work and what he means to you and I. As eloquent, if not more so, than Paul's epistles. And uh, they say that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. We will, we will have that Excitement as we get into those chapters. Uh, many Jewish scholars try to eliminate chapter 53 of Isaiah from their readings. And but we, what's fun to do is go to Israel, go to Jerusalem, go to the shrine of the book where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls laid out, which includes as its, as, a, as its key piece a complete scroll of Isaiah. And there's two things that are interesting about that. First of all, that is, there are really does not materially different than the Isaiah you and I have in our laps. But the other thing that's interesting, Isaiah 53 is right in the middle of it. Praise God. Much as they'd like it to go away. We will um, continue next time with the our tour, our sweep, through this incredible prophet. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. The Word of God. To me, there's nothing more exciting. You know, I've had a I've had a life that Lord has blessed with lots of adventures uh, for whatever reasons he's chosen to allow me in my weird ways uh, to do almost everything there is to do in one, at one time or another. I've had a rather bizarre life as I look back. And yet of all the adventures, 
that I've had. The most exciting is the adventure of discovery in his word. I think some of my most uh, dramatic moments in my life have been in the privacy of my study late at night when the Lord revealed some particular thing to me. Caused me to drop to my knees in the privacy of my study and just tears in my eyes and thank him for the, it. Just, there's just nothing like it. And you can have that too. Be prepared for the Lord to reveal dramatic things to you as you study his word. He will reward your diligence. And I, I want to call your attention. There are two kinds of reading. There's the devotional reading, the feeding you need to do every day. The feeding you need to do every day. What a lot of people do is they'll take, um, you know, usually have a ribbon. In the Bible you buy it has a ribbon or a marker. It's, it's, no, it's trivial to take two other ribbons. Give yourself three ribbons in there, different colors. Put one in the Old Testament, one in the poetical books, and one in the New Testament, and just cycle them. One, two, three chapters each, whatever you program yourself for. But uh, work your way through the Old Testament, work your way through the poetical books, Proverbs and Psalms, and work your way in the New Testament. So that every day you have a, a mixed diet. When you go out and you grab a snack, do you, you mix your diet a little bit, you know, some meat, some vegetables, whatever, right, some fruit. Well, my suggestion is to you, you know, but that's devotional reading. And that's your dialogue. See, you pray the Lord, the Lord will speak to you in the Word. And, and, and those passages will leap out and they'll guide you day by day, moment by moment. They'll guide you in your decisions. They will, that's the way God will speak to you. But that's devotional reading. Absolutely irreplaceable. That's your manna. You have to do it every day. Remember the manna? You couldn't do it. You couldn't store it up for a couple of days. You had to do it every day. You couldn't do it for somebody else. You can't read for, read for your kids or the guy next door or mom and dad. You've got to do it. Everyone has to do them their own. That's your devotional reading. That's your feeding. That's also, as Ephesians would call it, your washing. You're washed once judiciously, judicially in the blood of Jesus Christ. You're washed every day in the water of the Word, Ephesians. But there's another kind of reading that I'm also talking about. That's where you really get into it. You really make a serious study, book by book. I really believe in going it expositionally, book by book. Take a book and master it. Get into it. Buy a few commentaries. Do your digging. Really learn the book. Whatever appeals to you. It's a rich banquet. And the Lord will, Lord will honor that. And also expect Him to show you things. To reveal surprises to you as you go through. And, and show, He will reward that diligence that you show. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.